From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's a moment etched into her mind forever. I couldn't sleep that night because I could hear the boulders going down the creek behind my house, and it kind of sounds like thunder except for coming from underground. Flash flooding destroyed the town of Jamestown, Colorado, 10 years ago. Today, one woman's story of how people pulled together to reclaim their community and their lives. Then, more people are crossing the U.S. border and likely heading to Denver. Is the city prepared to serve new migrant arrivals? And later, could saving the rainforest come down to economics? I do think that if there's a chance that we can make it valuable as an intact system, perhaps with people living in it in a sustainable way, then we can make a major difference in how much rainforest will be left on this planet in 50 years. If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's been 10 years since historic floods ravaged communities along Colorado's Front Range. Urgent crisis in Colorado. Yeah, the floodwaters there are out of control. You can see dozens of homes, entire neighborhoods up to their roofs in that murky runoff. Within one hour, it completely surrounded the entire house and we had current. Stands at eight victims. The number of missing is about 650. That's down from more than 1,200. Entire towns were nearly wiped out, including Jamestown, the small mountain community that lies west of Boulder. Floodwaters destroyed the main road leading into and out of town. A mudslide demolished the entire fire station, and one longtime resident, Joey Howlett, a coveted member of the community, died. CPR's Matt Bloom recently visited the Merck, the town's main restaurant and community center. He spoke with the owner. There's coffee brewing. The moment I get to the Merck to meet with Rainbow Schultz, the owner. Do you want some half and half or oat milk? The cafe slash performance venue slash community center is as unique a place as it gets. Hand-painted pictures cover the walls of the century-old wooden building. There's a larger-than-life statue of an orangutan in the corner, and there are mementos from the terrifying flood, like a photo of a gray and black cat by the front door. Schultz says she belonged to Joey Howlett, the community member who died. We have this cool picture by the front door of the miracle of Shadow the Cat because when Joey was killed in the flood, he usually had Shadow sleeping on his chest when he went to sleep every night. And so we all assumed that Shadow had perished with Joey in the mudslide. And a few months later, Joey's good friend Heather was hiking around the gulch up behind his house and there was Shadow missing a leg, but still walking around outside the house. What do you make of, of that? I don't know. It was just kind of a sweet survivor story because we all, we all felt a little beat up and like we were surviving. And for her to have made it out was, a, it was just kind of a special inspirational story. Schultz is a survivor too. 
She has her own memory of that time, which she tells me about after we take a seat at one of the Merck's well-worn wooden tables. Well, I couldn't sleep that night because I could hear the boulders um, going down the creek behind my house, and it kind of sounds like thunder except for coming from underground. So I literally was just sitting straight up with my eyes open, just wondering what was happening like on the earth around me, and then I started hearing pounding at the door and when we opened the door our friend Miles was yelling you don't want to hear this but the mudslide already came down it already killed Joey you have to get out now get your kids if you want to stay alive and Joey was our our best friend kind of uh, father figure here in town who I originally bought the cafe from and who I spent every morning with having coffee with and so we just jumped into action grabbed the kids threw them in the car and um We tried to get out of town. My husband tried to go see if he could dig Joey out of his house, and we realized really quickly that neither of those things was going to happen, that um, the mudslide was huge on top of Joey's house, that mudslides had blocked either way of escape from town. And so we all... The main road running through town. Yes, on both sides. Both east and west had been covered in mudslides. But we were able to go um, up away from the creek to um, DJ and Jabane's house, and it was remarkable. They actually have two phone lines there, which was incredibly um, convenient, and a phone list. And the mayor and a lot of the other community members that were stuck up on this side, on this um, This was a friend's house that was higher in elevation? Correct. Yeah, we could go up the hill a little bit, just this hill right here. Um, Went through and called every single household and made sure that they were out, and if they didn't answer the phone, had the neighbor next to them answer the phone and knock on their door, and were able to, throughout the course of the night, account for every household in town and make sure that they either made it to the school or that they were safe on high ground on the north side as well. It was really pretty incredible that in the face of us all losing one of our favorite townspeople, that everyone still functioned really quickly and efficiently and made sure that everyone else was saved. So you said you stayed there overnight, and then you evacuated the next day? No, then the next day we realized it was still raining, and we realized that the um, the mudslides started increasing coming down the mountain on the north side where we were. So we went a little further up to Nolan Farmer's house, and that night as it rained, we realized that we were all in danger of a mudslide killing us in that house. So one person, two people at a time, would walk the perimeter of the house and try to find out if a mudslide was coming. And below us, the creek was rising. So in order to figure out um, our safest route to actually survive it, we just tried to keep monitoring it in the dark. We had uh, gotten a call earlier from the National Guard saying, we're calling off any sort of rescue, you're on your own. And then the phone and the electric went out. And then we were just in the dark, realizing we were completely on our own, knowing, like, you hear of these towns where a mudslide kills all the people, and that that was very likely about to be us. And I remember I was trying to figure out, I could put my kids in the garage because there's a cement wall, and that could potentially hold back the mudslide over them, or I could put them on the top floor, and then we could sort of, like, surf the mudslide if it hit the bottom of the house. So I had them at the top floor, and... We all just held on to our water bottles, which we are very obsessed with water bottles um, because we all were making sure we had enough water to survive it. And um, everyone walked the perimeter of the house, and we waited and we waited. And before the sun came up, the 
sound of the rain. Um, stopped and we knew we were going to make it. What did you, do you remember what you said to your kids or your family at that time and, and what happened? No, they were, my kids were sleeping luckily and uh, we were just so happy the sun came out. We all ran down here to the Merc and we made pancakes and pies and we uh, just went through all of the food in the place, probably most of the candy and all the beer, and we just celebrated that we survived. It was pretty great. What did your reaction to the flood teach you about yourself? I mean, on a sort of personal, spiritual level, I came to like really understand that change comes at any time and that there's no guarantees. And of course, that's something you're told your whole life, but I had a list of things that might happen. Like I might get cancer. I might get in a car crash. My parents are probably going to die before me. Like there's things that you sort of expect. And then one day you wake up and there's no more trees in the forest that you used to sit in and your kids don't have a school anymore and you don't have a car or a business anymore. And for that realization, um, to happen overnight sort of made me, um, not only have a different understanding of my own life experience and um, how change is going to come and that you, all you can do is surrender to it, but also to have empathy for the stories you hear all over the world in the news, that those aren't different people that are in a mudslide in India, that those are people who the day before were worrying about their job and they just you know, came, came into this great change as well. And so it's... Um, just giving me a different understanding of the whole human experience and how we are just put in these positions to deal with, and that's, that's part of life. <laughs> I want to circle a little bit back to what happened after the sun came out and you realized you were going to be okay, you are going to survive. I remember hearing the Merck became a community center. There was first responders stationed here, if I'm remembering correctly. Can you talk a little bit about what happened once the town entered recovery mode and what this place meant? Yeah, I mean, we always keep the door open anyhow, um, but the door literally didn't close. It was just um, became both the hub for people in town still here exchanging information, but also the walls were covered in maps and markers and the floor was covered in mud and volunteers came in and out and people made coffee and uh, definitely became even more of the community center that it already was. Um, so for two months maybe, six weeks, eight weeks, something like that, it was only um, sort of command central for everyone working on these projects. And then um, eventually we were able to get a huge water cistern up here and um, water pumps so that we were able to once a week open up as a cafe. And so what was a 20 minute drive was now a two hour drive to be able to drive um, different canyons and come down. Um, but we would have bands come up and then we'd make a huge feast and it was all just run by um, volunteer workers and um, donation and uh, was just more of like a big 
family gathering, um, which was really, really helpful for that year because people were scattered all over the place, you know, with a sister in Broomfield or in a condo they found in Westminster. I mean, everyone was all over the place. And so once a week, make the long drive back here and everyone just dance in the streets. There was no cars. <laughs> um, it was it was um, a special time to be able to get together. Did you ever consider moving away or after the flood at all? No, you know, my family kept asking me that. <laughs> like, why don't you just go somewhere else? And I was like, what? Like, I couldn't leave this. I wouldn't leave this. It's the best place on earth. You know, it felt like sometimes you have to pay to like live in paradise. And so that's what happened. You're totally fine. What are you feeling? Um, I'm just grateful for this place. Do you still feel that sense of, of community that you're talking about? You felt like right after the flood, that, that sense of coming together today? Um, I, uh, I'm still so grateful for this place and for the beautiful, um, you know, landscape around us, all the peace in the mountains around us. But of course, you're never going to have um, that same experience as you are when you're going through a disaster. I mean, that's just a different level of the human experience. And when you share that, that's something that's deeper than your regular day-to-day living. Um, so no, it's not something that you experience every day. 10 years out, we're kind of back to regular life, which is good. What's changed the most about Jamestown in your view since the flood? I was thinking about it and I thought about sort of three main changes. Do you want me to tell you all of them? Yeah. The one was that originally, sort of surprisingly, the flood put us on the map as far as um, people looking for affordable places to live in Boulder County. So our real estate agent, shortly after this natural disaster, started getting more calls than he had ever gotten because people were like, what? There's part of Boulder County that we hadn't heard about yet? And... So that has been kind of a, um, you know, a hard change for us, for our real estate values to go up so drastically. Of course, for people who wanted to move away, that was no problem at all. But it has, to an extent, changed the fabric of the town just because of uh, the nature of our affordability. It's actually gone away since having this natural disaster, where it used to be more of a multi-generational little village tucked away in the hills, we're now a little bit more of an outpost of Boulder's housing. And losing that affordability has really lost a little bit of the diversity that we had here, just of, you know, people in the community. We had a lot of different types of people that wouldn't necessarily have gotten to know each other, but they did because we were all in this little town together. So that is, I would say, the one negative is that it's too bad that it's not as affordable to live here anymore. And it's something that, although we've discussed it a lot in this town, there's not, um, we haven't come up with a lot of good solutions. Being a volunteer-run town of 275 people, it's, it's kind of a big, big, bigger problem than us so far. That's surprising to somebody who might assume after a disaster, it's actually become unaffordable and there's housing scarcity as opposed to, you know, population decline. Yeah, I think it was pretty surprising for all of us. I mean, our town realtor, David Manns himself, couldn't believe that his phone was ringing off the hook after this. So yeah, that's, that's been one aspect of the change. But, you know, I think we had 
an idea before that we were really self-reliant and self-sufficient, which to an extent we definitely are. And there was, um, you know, some of the guys with the backhoes, Quinter and Leon driving around, fixing roads, just the guys who help whenever there's a problem in town. If we need to move a driveway or move snow, they were out there literally putting roads back together. But we also realized that if we were going to continue to be a town, we needed to take on a lot, lot of help from the larger community. And so I guess it's fair in a sense that, you know, we became part of this larger community at the same time, sort of lost our independence a little bit, um, like I was saying with the affordability, but also were able to take on so much help. We like to feel independent up here in the mountains and that's definitely like the sense that you have when you're here. You mentioned the mindset of always being ready for the next thing. Can you give give us a little bit of insight into what a little bit more about what you mean by that? How does that feel on a day-to-day basis? What does that look like? I mean, I don't think it's luckily something that we deal with day-to-day, but um, two years ago we had a fire on the um, north and south side of town, and I think everyone was able to evacuate very quickly because they knew where their bag was to go. I was out of town, but I knew exactly where's my photo albums. I called my friend to grab a, our goldfish and my photo albums, and we're all just ready to jump at it because we know that life can change in an instant. And once that's happened a couple times, you're ready for the next one. So um, I guess, you know, in that, <laughs> in that sense, we're ready. <laughs> Especially because, as you said, we're seeing all sorts of disasters. It feels like more frequently than ever because of climate change. Yeah. And of course, you'd never think it's going to be you. I mean, look at the Marshall Fire. You don't think being in suburban Louisville that one day your entire neighborhood is going to burn down. I mean, there's surprising climate change all around us. And I think working with all these people who are there to help afterwards is the best we can do to try to uh, keep helping each other out. Great. Well, Rainbow, thank you so much for talking to me. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for coming up to the Merck. CPR's Matt Bloom speaking with Rainbow Schultz, owner of the Merck in Jamestown. Flash flooding nearly wiped out the town 10 years ago this week. Read Matt's reporting and see photos at CPR.org. When we come back, more people are crossing the southern U.S. border and arriving in Colorado. But can the Rocky Mountain State handle it all? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. You expect context from CPR News, but sometimes the news won't wait. Sign up for the Lookout Daily Email from CPR News, a rundown of important fact-based reporting in your inbox every day. And when major news breaks, you'll also get Lookout alerts. Sign up at CPR.org slash Lookout. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. More people are crossing the U.S. border and are likely headed to Denver. But is the city prepared to serve so many new migrant arrivals? Denverites Rebecca Tauber joins us now. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Chandra. At its peak in May, more than 300 migrants were arriving every day in Denver from the U.S.-Mexico border. But by June, that number dropped down to just dozens. 
But I understand that's changing again. Yeah, what we're seeing is arrival numbers are trickling back up. That's in part because more people are crossing the border generally. One expert we talked to said that might be because of rising violence on the Mexican side of the border, pushing more people to cross. Um, So that means we're getting more people on buses traveling elsewhere across the country, including Denver. Um, But the other part of that is that Texas Governor Greg Abbott is sending more than 1,000 people to the city so far. Nonprofits are helping people get on buses anyway. But when I talked to Abbott's office, they made it clear that his buses are meant to send a message to Democrats. And what is that message? So he called Denver a so-called sanctuary city that also includes cities like Chicago, New York, Philly, Washington, D.C. Many are led by Democrats and they vowed not to cooperate with federal requests to turn over undocumented immigrants for detainment or deportation. So he called out President Biden for failing to secure the borders. But these mayors are also calling out the federal government to provide more funding In recent years, it's been Congress that's deadlocked over immigration. Um, But just this past few weeks, a federal judge required Abbott to remove these floating barriers that he put in to prevent migrants to cross the Rio Grande. The judge called them a threat to human life. How many people is Denver housing right now? Nearly 1,000 people. Um, I talked with Denver Human Services spokesperson Victoria Aguilar. I would say definitely we are seeing an uptick. And I mean, compared to the end of July, right now we're currently sheltering what is essentially double what we have been sheltering the last couple of months. So there is an uptick for sure. 82 more people arrived on Monday. So far, the increase in arrivals has not forced Denver to mobilize its emergency operations center like it did in May. And before that, in December, is that being considered? So Aguilar told me that remains an option. The city is starting to feel the pressure, but it hasn't done that yet. Is that the only option? The city's also working on a request for proposals or an RFP for contractors to take over the response and all those services, um, but we don't know the details of that yet. Here's Aguilar again. Our current mayor, Johnston, is definitely working very closely with like city agencies, local community leaders, to create this new RFP. And it will definitely make it easier for like local, small small organizations to bid on more specific services rather than a full scope of care, which was what the previous RFP looked like. So that previous RFP was a $40 million deal that former Denver Mayor Michael Hancock had planned. It would have been all-inclusive, but he backed away from that because local advocates were questioning the company's track record and criticized how it didn't really partner with local nonprofits. Hmm. So for now, Denver staff are continuing to respond in the moment to arrivals. And what's been the cost to Denver? So Denver's received $3.5 million from the state and more than $9.5 million from the federal government, but the city has also spent more than $24 million so far. Um, City Council sent a letter to the mayor's office about upcoming budget priorities. Mm. Um, They asked the mayor to take into account these emergency costs. The city didn't explicitly plan for that in the past two years. Um, So the mayor, Mike Johnston, is expected to release his 2024 budget this month. Uh, But also mayors across the country have been calling for more federal support specifically. What are immigrant rights advocates saying about all of this? 
So we talked with Jennifer Piper. She's with the American Friends Service Committee. They've really been on the front lines of this response. And she said she and other advocates want a solution that will disperse migrant shelters across the city and lighten the load on specific neighborhoods. Rebecca, thanks for this insight. Thank you for having me. Denverite's Rebecca Tauber. Read her co-reporting on this issue with Kevin Beatty at denverite.com. When we come back, a contest to save the rainforest, and a university in Colorado is in the thick of it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Glendale and Indy 1023 presents Colorado Music, Saturday, September 23rd at Infinity Park. I'm Featuring four bands, all from the Centennial State, Lip Gloss DJs, Heavy Diamond Ring, Juno Rosa, and Wilderness. Bring blankets, chairs, your favorite food, and any non-alcoholic beverages. Glendale presents Colorado Music, Gates at 415, Wilderness at 8. Details and tickets, Indy1023.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, hosting this week from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. This is where our Western Slope producer Tom Hess is based. He has the story now of a really important competition that ties together fairly disparate places, Zurich, Barcelona, and Grand Junction. What's one square kilometer of rainforest worth? We don't know yet, but finding out the answer to that question is worth $10 million to Tom Walla, a biology professor at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. He is leading a group that's in the final round of a global competition that will award an eight-figure payout to the team that can best advance our understanding of rainforests. So what we're trying to do is figure out how to evaluate that rainforest so that Uh, individuals, companies, and maybe someday even the stock market could say there's a value in this rainforest beyond cows and soybean. It's virtually impossible to measure any rainforest completely. I would bet that not a single scientist on the planet would ever say they could tell you every species and every interaction that occurs in a rainforest a square kilometer in size. With our current technology, it just can't be done. If it can't be measured, then we can't place a value on it. If we can't place a value on it, we can't protect it in an economic sense. The XPRIZE competition is a five-year process. The semifinal round involved a trip to Singapore, where teams had a timed window to test their technologies, endeavoring to catalog as many species as possible in a defined area of rainforest. The struggle has always been, how do we identify all these species? I, I work on moths, and I'm not a taxonomist, but I collect moths and send them to taxonomists. And there are many of them. And even of the thousands that we've collected, we only identify probably fewer than 20%, because most of them don't have names. So it takes years for them to get named. So somehow we have to count all these things, the moths, the flies, the wasps, the ants, the birds, the frogs, and the bats, and count all those things very quickly in 72 hours and get an estimate of what that square kilometer of rainforest really holds. And is that what the nets behind you are for, is for moths? (laughs) There's a net. (laughs) 
Um, these are insect gnats. These are for insect biology that I teach here at CMU. And they collect all the insects that students can collect. And I'm guessing that's probably not what you pitched to XPRIZE. You know, my first pitch was, why don't I drag an insect net around behind a drone? <laughs> and they said, you're on the right track. Good start. The CMU team is still using drones, but the nets are staying behind. Instead, drones take a small type of raft that rests in the rainforest canopy equipped with instrumentation that takes photos, records DNA, employs facial recognition, and listens for sound. In many ways, tropical rainforest stands in stark comparison to to our own desert. We have places that are strikingly beautiful from a visual perspective of landscape, but often the desert is the quietest place you'll ever hear. When you step out of your car in the desert, you can hear your own ears ringing. It's so quiet. If you lived in a rainforest, you would never know the sound of silence. If you were born in the Amazon, there would be no place you could ever go where you couldn't hear the raging sounds of insects, frogs, birds, of the leaf movement, just at a very high volume all the time. Wallace team is expansive, ranging from the University of Nevada, Reno, to Montreal, and encompassing everything from drone mechanics to political science. Tim Casey handles that last part. He's a poli-sci professor at CMU and directs the Natural Resource Center. I'm not very good at counting insects or, you know, plants or anything like that, but um, I'm, I'm reasonably good and interested in the question of how we manage those spaces. Casey is working on a framework for incorporating the new technology with indigenous communities. If it all works out, the team will not only have a mechanism for calculating rainforest biodiversity, and therefore the potential value of that area, but also a means for connecting that with local communities who have a similarly priceless understanding of their environment. And so we try to capture their tradition, what we call traditional knowledge, and that shows up in a lot of different ways. A good example of that is just right next door here in Bears Ears National Monument, where there's a sort of co-management agreement between indigenous populations and the federal government. The finals for the XPRIZE competition, which feature five other teams from around the world, including Spain and Switzerland, are set for early next year. As for XPRIZE itself, listeners might recognize the name from the carbon capture discussions. Elon Musk is funding a similar competition around that science. Wallace says he understands if people are skeptical. XPRIZE is a nonprofit with backing from big tech. Harrison Ford and James Cameron are somehow involved. And the idea of having researchers compete in this way for funding may not square with academic tradition. You know, I get it that some people are circumspect about market-based solutions for problems that many of us put in a place that's close to our hearts. Some things in the world we protect because they have an intrinsic value that we believe should be protected independent of its market price. And I have believed this my whole life about rainforest. But all through my career, I have watched rainforests be cut and reduced. And I've watched cities expand into it, uh, timber companies cut it down. I've watched it become degraded and lost 
And most recently in Southeast Asia, I've seen it converted into palm plantations to make vegetable oil on a scale that I thought was really not possible. It's going to be destroyed if it isn't protected. The intrinsic value argument of something like the Nature Conservancy can only do so much. They do some wonderful things, but they can't preserve all of the tropics. And they can't stop the onslaught of economic forces that drive deforestation. I do think that if there's a chance that we can make rainforests more valuable to people who are economically motivated, and we can make it valuable as an intact system, perhaps with people living in it in a sustainable way, then we can make a major difference in how much rainforest will be left on this planet in 50 years compared to where we're going today. In the dry, quiet confines of Grand Junction, I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. More voices from the Western Slope tomorrow. I'll report on the decades-long campaign for a recreation center here in Grand Junction. Seriously, this spans generations now. At one point, a high school student took on the cause for a class project, only to find himself ganged up on at a meeting. We essentially walked into a room with city council, but they had also invited all the local private gym owners to the same breakfast. And the gym owners were very much opposed to the idea of a public recreation center. As They it saw it as competition. Correct, yes. Public they, competition. Yes, they, they definitely thought it, it was going to compete with their business. Was this an ambush? It felt like it afterwards, <laughs> yes. Do you remember arguing your case in the face of that kind of pressure? I do recall at least one of the gym owners was very vocal about how they provide all the services that the community needs at their facility. And I argued that as a teen or even as a child when I was younger being taken to those same facilities that he was talking about that I didn't feel included in those facilities where I didn't have the chance to go into the pool any given day. It was more on Saturdays during select hours you can bring your kids into the pool. Otherwise, you're pretty much left at the daycare. That high school student is now a grown-up and he's finally getting his wish, a rec center for Grand Junction. That's tomorrow. Chandra, back to you in Denver. Thanks, Ryan. When we come back, working to raise awareness about childhood obesity. But not everyone agrees about the best way to approach it. And a city council meeting that's anything but boring. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Indy 1023 presents Johnny Wednesday, September 27th at the Fox Theater in Boulder. Johnny on tour in support of his new album, It's Never Fair, Always True. Tickets, details, and more, Indy1023.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. September is National Childhood Obesity Awareness Month. And earlier this year, the American Academy of Pediatrics released new guidance on how to best treat children who've been diagnosed as overweight or obese. That's when I spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis, about the recommendations. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Chandra. First, tell us about the new guidelines. 
This was the first time in 15 years the American Academy of Pediatrics put out recommendations on childhood obesity. Parts of it aren't controversial, like doctors need to think about not just the child, but the whole family. Things like a family's access to nutritional food, physical activity, medical support. And there's some consensus on certain treatments. The guidelines recommend counseling for children in a collaborative, not confrontational or directive way, and intensive behavior and lifestyle treatment, the best being 26 or more hours of face-to-face family-based treatment over a several-month period. So what don't experts agree on? The most controversial part is that the guidelines favor doctors taking some really aggressive actions early. They include weight loss medication for children 12 and older, and for teens 13 and older with severe obesity, they recommend evaluating kids for metabolic and bariatric surgery. The previous recommend took a more wait-and-see approach, waiting to see if a child could shed pounds as they got older. Many doctors, including one you spoke with, agree with this more proactive approach. What did you hear? The doctor I spoke with is a pediatric endocrinologist and medical director for lifestyle medicine at Children's Hospital Colorado, Megan Kelsey. She says all the recent literature supports this kind of proactive approach. Obesity is very likely to persist into adulthood. Very few patients, very few kids using the approach that we had before, the staged approach to uh, weight management, had resolution of their obesity. In fact, most had ongoing weight gain. Dr. Kelsey points to all of the serious medical problems that come with obesity, like diabetes. Kelsey was actually part of a national trial, the largest treatment trial for type 2 diabetes in children, and they found that diabetes is more aggressive in kids. And when you're thinking that these are kids who are diagnosed when they're 15, they're having heart issues, eye issues, kidney issues before they're 30. And so it's really important to treat and prevent these diseases early and not just wait until they get into adulthood and then have further health problems down the line. So if you can head off obesity, Dr. Kelsey's saying you Mm -hmm. can head off all sorts of problems. She says research also points to the really horrible psychological effects of obesity in kids, something she sees a lot in the kids she treats. Patients who have really elevated body mass index are more likely not only to have complications of that, but to experience weight stigma, bullying, teasing, and then that um, causes mental health challenges and can further contribute to weight gain. Um, And that the higher the body mass index gets, the less likely they'll ever get to a healthy body mass index using, say, bariatric surgery or medications. Pretty compelling arguments for taking action early. What's the counter-argument? Well, first, just to address this idea of stigma, 
There's a movement around appreciating all body types, including larger bodies, even using the term fat in a non-pejorative way. Mm -hmm. Dr. Anna Marie Amelia also points to research that finds you can't determine someone's health just by looking at them. Amelia told me she had a visceral reaction when she read the guidelines. She even got an upset stomach. She's chief medical officer and chief clinical officer at the Denver-based Eating Recovery Center. It's this treatment program that serves kids from all over the country. The guidelines don't address body diversity or the fact that bodies come in all sizes. You know, and so they focus just on the body mass index, you know, size of the body and the BMI. That alone does not measure health. For example, the guidelines say teens 13 and older with certain very high BMIs need to be evaluated for weight loss surgery. Amelia worries this will prompt some doctors to go to extreme measures without taking the individual kid into account and with doing the important tests first. How might these guidelines impact people she treats who struggle with eating disorders? She thinks all of the emphasis on BMI and these extreme measures will make larger-bodied kids more self-conscious about weight and therefore more prone to eating disorders. Already, isolation, job loss, and other factors during the pandemic led to a real increase in people seeking treatment for eating disorders. We know that one of the strongest risk factors for developing an eating disorder is previous weight loss attempts, right? So we don't know the long-term risks and benefits of bariatric surgery or weight loss medicines, but we have known risk factors associated with disrupting the relationship with food and the body. And Dr. Amelia says weight loss medications could ultimately make the problem worse. All of these medicines, if they are effective, are only effective while the person's taking the medicine. Mm -hmm. So the American Academy of Pediatrics is saying that it is okay to put a 12-year-old on these medications in order to, to lose weight. But we also know that the minute the kid goes off the medicine, they're going to gain it back. That's not to say Amelia disagrees with everything in the new guidelines. She supports recommendations that encourage doctors to get training in how to talk about weight and understand obesity issues in kids. And she does support lifestyle therapies around mental health and nutrition and exercise. I know you reached out to people who've dealt with some serious weight issues. What did they say about the things like surgery and medication? I spoke with a 19-year-old woman named Zayden Wirtz who lives in Hasty, Colorado, in the southeastern part of the state. She says she became very overweight as a middle schooler, so much so that she and her parents were afraid for her health. So they went to Children's Hospital Colorado to seek treatment. We had, you know, talked about bariatric surgery, and um, that was very up in the air as well because I didn't want to go into a surgery where there was risks and implications, especially that young. But I also didn't feel like there was many options either because my health was rapidly declining. I didn't feel like myself and my parents were scared. (laughs) 
Zayden says she was glad bariatric surgery was on the table, but also glad she didn't end up doing it. She says they eventually decided to go through the Lifestyle Medicine Clinic at Children's. She underwent intensive counseling. She also got off social media, Mm. and she began taking weight loss medication. And I'm very unapologetic about it. I do believe that if you can lose weight on a medication, you should. And that's what my doctor and I have come to the conclusion of in my case. Zayden says the lifestyle clinic helped her learn that her weight challenges weren't all her own fault and improved her confidence. She says she's at a much healthier weight now and has a better sense of how to stay healthy uh, now that she's older. She's also working on a cookbook of family recipes. She says some are really healthy and some not so much. (laughs) Um, On the other hand, I spoke with Joanna Nolan, who was treated for an eating disorder as an adult, but she dealt with weight issues from a really young age, even prescribed medication as a young kid. She thinks, like Dr. Amelia earlier, that the guidelines will encourage doctors to propose things like surgery without taking into account each kid. I feel like there's just this stigma among physicians that individuals with larger bodies or who live in larger bodies automatically have specific medical issues or conditions. And, you know, I personally have been on the receiving end of that, um, you know, my entire life that if I, you know, because as a young kid, I was, um, not thin like the other kids in my class or my peers that I was going to grow up to have diabetes or automatically, you know, be labeled with certain medical conditions um, simply because I was a larger bodied person. So these guidelines are out there. Do you have a sense of how it's affecting how doctors treat childhood obesity? I think it'll obviously take a while to see the effects of this Children's Hospital Colorado, for one, says it won't change how they treat kids. They'll continue to assess each child, and they'll offer what they see as the best way to help children become healthy adults, whether it's lifestyle counseling, medication, surgery, or taking this wait-and-see approach. Andrea, thanks. You're welcome. My colleague Andrea Dukakis speaking with me in April about new guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics about treating childhood obesity. It affects nearly 14.5 million children in the U.S. That's about one in five children. September is National Childhood Obesity Awareness Month. Anyone who's gone to a city council meeting can tell you they're usually better for helping you fall asleep than keeping you on the edge of your seat. But the season opening production from Denver's Curious Theater proves that local government can provide plenty of brutal drama and even unexpected comedy. CPR's Eaton Lane takes us to a rehearsal of The Minutes. So we're ready to begin the meeting with the approval of The Minutes. At this time, are there any corrections, additions, or deletions to The Minutes as they were presented? If not, I'll ask for a motion to approve the minutes. So moved. Second. Actors playing the members of a small town city council sit around the table in rehearsal at Curious Theater's space in Denver's Golden Triangle neighborhood. We're ready to vote. Bob? Yes. I'm sorry. I see the minutes for the October 18th meeting, but are there no minutes for the October 25th meeting? 
It might not sound like it at this point, but the regional premiere of Tracy Letts's The Minutes is a brutal, meticulously constructed horror show that drips with the original sins of American democracy. It's also surprisingly funny, wringing out laughs between the winces. And it all starts with those missing minutes. To discuss this item on the agenda without him here, Mr. Carr is no longer on the council, Mr. P. Yes, I heard that. I, I was told that. But absent a copy of the minutes, I'm a little unclear as to why that is. Artistic producer and director Christy Montour Larson says it was clear from the first reading that the minutes was perfect for curious theater audiences, and this was the time to produce it. We just couldn't help but realize what a very funny play this is. It also has a very uh, important uh, political thought and message to it, which of course fits right in the Curious DNA. Curious, which is on its 26th season, is known for staging shows that dive into current debates around topics like race, identity, and American culture. Uh, we had the first read-through just a couple days ago, Eden, and it is it was so fun to see the whole room erupt in laughter all the time. If anybody's ever scratched their heads about why the government works the way it does, I think people will truly enjoy this play. What I really love about this play specifically is that it is exceedingly funny until it's not. <laughs> Company member Karen Slack plays the scattered, skittish, and heavily medicated Ms. Matz, chairperson of the Council Rules Committee. It sort of resonates with Jordan Peele and that level of humor and everything is going fine until all of a sudden you're in a world that you didn't anticipate that you were in and had no idea that you were sort of complicit as the audience. That's what happens to the council's newest member as he tries to figure out what happened to the missing minutes and to a fellow council member who's also gone missing. I'd like to at least follow up on this agenda item in a way that would suit Mr. Carr. He came to learn that the sheriff's department was recovering more than 100 lost and stolen bicycles each year on the streets of Big Cherry in the greater metropolitan Big Cherry area. The answers turn up secrets all the way back to the founding of the town. Josh Robinson plays the inquisitive councilman. He says satire, like the minutes, is the most dangerous form of comedy. Because it speaks truth to power, and that makes power uncomfortable. And that's what this play does, and it's how you know you're still living in a free country, so that we can do it. I think if you are following politics in this country, you can't help but see all the parallels in the microcosm that is this play. And I think... You recognize yourself, you recognize people you run into or disagree with or possibly agree with. And that recognition, I think, is, is a joy in the theater. Michael McNeil, in his role as Mayor Superba, waves away his colleagues' qualms by declaring democracy's messy. And just those two words can mean so much, and it does in this play, because what is democracy? Who owns democracy? Does it really belong to the people, or does it belong to a small section of people who then trickle it down to the people? So it's a messy business, so to speak. Whose history is told and who's forgotten is at the heart of The Minutes. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. The Minutes runs now through October 14th at Denver's Curious Theater. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the Colorado Matters cast. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. 
Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.